invite you to open now in the New Testament to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll read up to verse 11. Give your attention to the word of our God. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So far from God's holy word, a dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ you know, I feel a, a special affinity for this book as I've been, uh, you know, interestingly, the pastor of an island congregation for these many years. And Crete, of course, you can look on your map in the study Bible if you don't know where that is. It's an island in the Mediterranean. And this book is written to Titus as he works with the people of Crete. And the apostle had been there on his missionary journey and then left Titus to set things in order after he had departed. And so the gospel had worked a great change as it washed over the island of Crete. And it was a dramatic and joyful change for the salvation of many souls. And now uh, Titus is there to solidify these churches into this Christ-like pattern, a new way of life. And he should, uh, if you read earlier in the book of Titus, he should establish elders in every church uh, and promote sound doctrine against every erroneous and false teaching. Titus and the elders with him should teach and exhort and rebuke with all authority, it says in chapter 2, 15. They should teach everything that the Apostle Paul had proclaimed without allowing anyone to disregard them. Let no one disregard you as you bring these things you know, continually for, before the people. Well, now in chapter 3, at the urging of Paul's preaching and the continuous labors of Titus and the elders... The believers must be re uh, readily remember and apply their gracious salvation 
against every wicked way. The believers must readily remember and apply their gracious salvation against every wicked way. And we kind of want to talk about this in in two parts. What the apostle calls warped and worthless as opposed to a people who are now regenerated and renewed. So as Paul maps out the most important responsibilities for Titus, he doesn't sweeten it or soften the situation when he describes the wicked attitudes and the influences that stand against the gospel in Crete. In chapter 1, he describes the wicked disposition of their culture and of sort of like the mindset of the place um, as especially ugly. And, and, uh, and this is uh, all the more true of the false teachers that were troubling the church. He says there in chapter 1, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he goes on to say they're defiled, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And he starts to focus in especially on these false teachers with those last words. But that's scathing. You know, that hurts. Uh, you know, to, you know, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You know, this is, this is uh, you know, ugly. Um, and in that regard, you know, from, from the apostle to Titus and to the elders that are to do this work, you know, Christians, and especially you who are leaders, don't delude yourself into thinking that this is an easy thing that we're doing to establish the church, that it will, that it will just roll along smoothly, that it will just fall into place. It will be gospel labor. It will be a battle the way that the apostles describe it. It will be a soldierly work in some ways to push back against wicked thinking, against foolish and false teachings, and insubordinate men who are trying to press their way on the church at the expense of God's truth. And you know that that we live in in a climate, a church climate, that longs for ease, that longs for peace at the expense of God's truth. You know, you know it, it, the way that they preach it and the way that they tell it, it's like, you know, what's your job as a Christian? To be nice. And it's like, well, yeah, we want to be nice, but not at God's expense. You know, we'll be, we'll be mild when God says we should stand firm. And we'll be nice instead of correcting or rebuking or saying, no, not the way of the world, but the way of Christ is the way that we must go. And in that way, the churches refuse. Uh, and you can see there's a, you know, some connection here. Uh, they refuse to appoint spiritual elders. They have, they have administrators, they have leaders, but they refuse the idea of spiritual elders who will bring, you know, the gospel in a way that, you know, is, you know, sometimes confrontational and disciplinary, who will bring the truth of God's word to bear from the pulpit uh, at the expense of people being offended by it because it's not what we want in the flesh. Uh, And in that way, if we are a church that's unwilling to fight, if we are a church that, that at all costs avoids conflict, with the want of ease or peace, but a false you know, sort of ease and a false sort of peace, then it makes the church pathetic. It makes the church easy to disregard. And the very same people that want this, they want the comfort and want the ease, will turn around and complain, now, why are all the youth leaving the church? Oh, you know, look at the state of disrepair of the church in our time. And you know, it's no wonder when the church is a pathetic 
uh, you know, low commitment, low conflict, ease at the expense of the truth, you know, you can see why this is happening. So if we're shocked by that, it's because we are very often, we're shocked and unwilling to engage uh, in the conflict and we're unwilling to contend against insubordinate men for the sake of the gospel to honor the name of Jesus. Well, in chapter 3, the words that stand out to me describing us in our unbelieving attitudes and, and where this conflict really comes, flo- comes from, the, the words that stood out to me, of course, are warped and worthless. You know, the attitudes of a worldly life, uh, especially chapter 3, uh, verse 3, you know, it tells how, it shows how our sins have us tied in knots, lead us down unproductive pathways, uh, and give us nothing good to show for it. And as Christians, especially as we examine ourselves for the table, like we were talking about earlier, we can learn much with a sober mind for self-examination. We were once the people that thought foolishly, disobeying God's commands and disregarding authority to have our own way. It is the, it is the natural state of our time to think of ourselves as the captains and masters of our own life and our own destiny, uh, so much so that reality is whatever I say it is uh, about my body, about what I think, about where I want my life to go. But these passions that we thought we had mastered, they, of course, enslave us. We, we, the want of money puts us in chains, puts us into slavery. We want control of our lives. This is my life to live as I see fit. But we end up again in bondage to our sins as we pursue these things that we believe will give us power. And, of course, they give us uh, nothing but bitterness. Uh, they don't lead... They don't lead to the happiness we think they will, the recognition of other people, of, of our you know, strengths and gifts and so on. It doesn't bring the happiness that we imagine. We chase sexual pleasure and give our attention to pornography, but it galls us and leaves us empty and broken in body and mind and spirit. Abuse of substances for pleasures, but it poisons us. And, and you know, he says, we once lived this way. We once thought this way. And, you know, do you still live this way? And do you sort of long for these things or cast, you know, sort of a longing eye and fleeting glances as what everyone else can do? You know, oh, I can't do that anymore because, you know, I'm a Christian. And, and uh, you know, is this the way that we, uh, do we not see that these things enslaved us? And to think this way is to go downward, uh, you know, to destruction. Another statement from this chapter that really is chilling you know, we passed our days in malice and envy, hating one another. You know, this is, uh, it's a really chilling thing. You know, I'm against others and they're against me. And this is the way that I think and the way that I live my life. I want what others have and I have to protect what's mine against them. They hate me, so what? I hate them more. And this is the, you know, this is the way that people are living. And, you know, what a life to pass our days this way. And are we going to continue to think this way? Playing around with that attitude? You know, in malice towards others? Wishing harm on others? Envying others? Desperately wanting what they have? I can't be happy for them. You know, do you allow, do you allow your days to pass with sort of naked anger, naked hatred against others? without even a consideration that it is poison, you know, to a spiritual life. 
and that, and that our task and our goal is to put the needs of others before ourselves. If we're caught up in such sins as these, then we need to repent. You know, if you need help to disentangle from these, you should talk to your pastor. You should talk to your elders about how to get untangled from such sins. And we jump over to verse 9, describing, you know, still more sort of this bent and warped and worthless ways of thinking. You know, God particularly, says the apostle, you know, does not look with favor on those who stir up controversy, who stir up dissent and quarrels and division. Jesus is jealous for the love and the unity of his church. And a person that lives with such pride that they would cut their way through the church to get what they want, you know, step on others in the church, break the unity of the church to have their own way, uh, they find themselves at odds with Jesus. This is his beloved bride. This is, as we said in the morning, the house of the living God. And Jesus has committed himself when he said, you know, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who will contend with him? So the apostle says about such a person, they're self-condemned. And it should be evident, you know, if we are divisive and if we are willing to crack the unity of the church to get what we want, we are at odds with Jesus. It is self-evident, and so we are self-condemned. He builds and we would tear down. That's warped. It's warped thinking. And this is the way that we would think, right, in our sins. We are, we are such people unless God changes us. We are the kind of people who, um, you know, who once would, you know, would think this way, live this way, flirting with all manner of destructive and ruinous sins. But God has changed things, and that's really the key of this passage. We have, we have known what it was, and we have tasted what it was to be warped and worthless with a worldly mind. But God has now regenerated and renewed the church. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, it says there in verse 4, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And he goes on then to talk about our regeneration and our renewal in the Spirit. It's beautiful. You know, Jesus came to earth, cutting through the darkness, that is, cutting through everything that was warped and worthless with the, the message of the kingdom of heaven and everything that God has intended for us, cutting through the bonds of sin and death that held us down to dead living for rescue, for deliverance, for freedom. And it all comes from Him as a gift, a gift of His mercy. It's so important then in that light to see how highly valued you know, our baptism truly is, the washing of regeneration. You know, this is the reference right to our baptism. And it is beautiful. God has made our baptism to be the sign and the seal of this incredibly gracious salvation. This is meant to, to be the sign of our entry into a new way of life and into the, the, the mercy and the grace and the love of God, His loving kindness, righteousness, adopting, living spiritual hope. God provided the washing of regeneration and the outpouring of his spirit to continue that, you know, what he has begun, you know, to its fullest extent until we are perfected. It is, you know, a gift to those 
who could never have saved themselves. Now, you are aware, and, and, and you know, it's my understanding that many of the churches right around here, just as well as us in Long Island, that there are many who are shocked and offended by the idea of you know, our, our children being baptized, even little babies being baptized. They, you know, they say, and they, their understanding is something like this, you know, how can you baptize this baby, this little boy, this little girl? How can you baptize them? They haven't done anything to, you know, to choose God. They haven't done anything to show whether they're going to be a, a real believer or not. But they can save their shock and their offense very quickly, very simply, as we look at a passage like this, we see the way that we were saved. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to this incredible, rescuing, changing love of God that we see here. It's poured out to us according to the covenant of God's grace and according to His wisdom and electing love, not our choice. And so, the baptism that we understand as we baptize our children is, is one that, uh, that, that does not reflect, and this is really you know, key in this misunderstanding, uh, it is not a statement about our devotion to God, not first. It is a statement of his incredible and gracious mercy towards us. You know, in that way, what is shocking and offensive is to degrade the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior to make the sacrament uh, about promoting the individual choices of Cretans. And, you know, there is something of a pun there because this passage, uh, you know, this is where that, you know, sort of insult comes from. If you've heard, you know, maybe, maybe some of you, you know, younger people have never called someone a Cretan, you know, when you were in a, in a battle of words, but it's an insult. You know, it, it points to the Bible, actually. You know, and Bible insults are not always known, you know, out there anymore. But, uh, but a Cretan, you know, is somebody who is a, a lazy and evil, just like we were talking about in chapter 1. You know, here, this, you know, that's really a, a, an interesting thing, right? When we know ourselves, you know, and, and we count ourselves as once having been Cretans, then we won't be self-promoting in the face of God's incredible mercy. We won't say, you know, it's about what I have done. And when we read this passage, we will be ready to say amen when it says it's because of his loving kindness and his mercy and not works done by me. And that's really critical when we think about baptism. God didn't appear with grace and favor because we invited him. We were busy, according to this passage, throwing rocks at each other in anger, hating one another and being hated. And, and living and spending our days in malice and envy. Those people didn't say, you know, God, we need a rescuer. People like that say, you know, stay out of it. We're busy, you know, beating each other. We're busy, you know, uh, scraping and fighting with each other. We didn't invite him. What had we done but live in hateful conflict when God came with the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, showing us favor and pouring out rich gifts which healed and which straightened, and which uh, 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 renewed warped and sinful people. He didn't come to collect the already clean, but to those who were sick and who needed the physician, as Jesus taught. He came here to save, to save people from worthlessness, to wash them, to enrich them, to adopt them as his heirs for eternal life. 
And that reflects so well on God, not so much on us. And that's a beautiful thing. He loved us when we were in that awful condition with a wonderful and gracious love. So baptism is a sign of that incredible mercy and blessing. All of, all of the grace of God, not a work that begins with us. And when we baptize our little children and many more children, I understand, are on the way in this congregation. That's a beautiful thought, that it's, it's according to his command. And it is an acknowledgement of his love, which lasts to a thousand generations. It is the love of God at work in our midst that is a reminder to us that, that we and our children are in this covenant with God, a God to you and to your children after you. The children of believers are holy. They should be counted as proper members of his church. And they should be trained from before they can even remember to know him and to walk with him and to honor him. You think of Deuteronomy 6. When you're going out, when you're coming in, when you're on the way, you're teaching them, showing them what God has done. When we witness new baptisms, whether children or adults, we should readily bring to mind the way we were saved and rejoice mercifully, graciously, not deserved. We would remember that God claimed us, that he washed our souls when outwardly we were washed with water. And following that critical turning point, now we live a new and spiritual life. He gives the Holy Spirit so that we can now carry on in this new condition. Those who are rebirthed, regenerated, they live a new kind of life. And all of it is God's work and all of it is empowered by him. This is his great kindness at every step. So as we witness baptisms, then we remember our own and we, we, we have to test ourselves. You know, have I, have I valued this position in which I stand and this baptism that I've received? And when I see others coming to know the Lord and when I see them being baptized and when I see their children being baptized, we all remember we are God's own sons and daughters. And this didn't come from us. It came from Him. And if we would readily, if we would quickly, if we would often daily, hourly, remember our baptism, then we will remember what kind of life that God has called us to lead, a new and spiritual walk, a spiritual life. We were once foolish, but no more. We were once, you know, living in futility, but no more. We once were ready to make factions and, cut, you know, divide people, but no longer. Now we're reminded Perpetually, what a spiritual life is about. And our baptism is, you know, sort of crackling with energy. It's buzzing, it's activated and full of faith. But not for the things that many people think. Not for the things that, you know, if you watch, I don't know, stuff about the church on TV or if you hear some people tell it, uh, you know, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? Well, I guess you're going to speak in gibberish and, you know, dance around and jump and, you know, shake and do all kinds of things. Or, you know, Pastor Drew can wave his jacket and people will fall over. Oh, and we'll all, you know, just we'll all celebrate. But what is, what is that? Is, that, is not, that is not what the apostle speaks about here. For instance, if we wanted to know, if we wanted to be clear about what the Spirit was going to do in our lives, we would look to verse 1 of this very chapter. Look at chapter 3. Remind them, Titus 
and the elders that, that are working. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now that would be the Holy Spirit at work in our midst. That would be spiritual living, an evidence that the Holy Spirit was here with those who have been truly changed, changed in their heart, changed in their mind, renewed as God's people. We would do the unglamorous thing, submit to authority. Oh, you know, like, God, we wanted to serve you the cool way. You know, God, we wanted to, we wanted to do things that were, like, awesome and, and that, you know, people would acknowledge and that, you know, uh, that we would feel great, uh, you know, about doing. You know, I want to be right there under the overpass giving food to the poor. Maybe you will. I want to go to Romania like we took an offering for this morning. I want to be the one that's right there at the tip of the spear and all. But, but we're thinking rather backwards very often. We are at the cutting edge of the faith as we submit to our own leaders or to our own parents or to you know, our elected officials, as difficult as that may be. And that is difficult. There, there, that is a spiritual life that we're talking about, to obey and esteem our own elders to respect our rulers with careful words and gentle minds and maybe, you know, a careful social media posts and so on. That's hard. That's actually difficult. And that's why many people prefer for the spirit to be this sort of unknown force. Because then, you know, I don't have to submit to anyone. The spirit just is a, you know, is an is a energy, whatever that means. But that's not how the apostle teaches about the Holy Spirit. We, the baptized community, the spiritual people, we will make ourselves ready for every good work. We will strive to control our tongues. Remember that James says the one that could control his tongue, now that would be a perfect man. But, you know, oh, we don't want to do that. We want, we want, to, do, we want to do spiritual things. We don't, want to, we don't want self-control. That doesn't feel very powerful. You know, think about it. No one finds us, you know, barely able to hold back, you know, malicious words, insults, quarrelsome, uh, and abrasive talk. Um, we practice gentleness. You know, are you gentle? That's difficult sometimes to be a gentle person for Jesus' sake. Would other people agree? Oh, yeah, I'm very Would other people agree? You know, would your wife agree? Or would your husband agree? You're gentle. Would your, would your kids agree that you're a gentle man, a gentle woman? Why is it okay for us to dismiss the virtues that we don't prefer when the fruits of the Spirit are for all of us, all of them for all of us, to strive for, to practice? It's not optional, spiritual virtue. Strive to show perfect courtesy toward all people? Wow, I don't. I don't show perfect courtesy uh, that's, that's a challenge um, to, to think of others as more significant than yourself and treat them accordingly. A great challenge. He says, remind them, you know, remind them of these things. Do you take reminders well of what you need to do to honor the Lord? You know, we're not all that great at that either. Titus and the elders are supposed to remind them Often, you know, not that way, this way, you know. Remind them, even rebuke and correct. 
How are you at taking a rebuke? The wise, you know, the wise man, the wise person, they, they invite correction and they learn from it and they grow from it. And we're like, you know, just because you said it, I want to do the opposite so hard. You know, it's, our attitude is very often that we receive correction poorly. We receive rebuke very poorly. This is, uh, this is a challenge for us to say, you know, you're right. My baptism tells me, you know, towards the kingdom, ever towards the kingdom. And I have diverted my life. I have slowed down my pace. I have dithered, you know, in, in things that are unprofitable. And I can't afford, I can't afford to do anything but devote myself to good works. I can't afford to focus on those things that are anything less than excellent and profitable. And I'm not sure that our music and our entertainments and our wealth and our distractions are all excellent and profitable for our spirit. You know, call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure many, you know, much and many of what we would say is, is you know, is unprofitable at best and, uh, you know, degrading, um, you know, at the least. So my baptism reminds me I can't afford to drain away my energy on what is less than the treasure of Christ. Remind them to be ready, you know, for this kind of service. And you believers with your baptisms right out in the open, like a, you know, a, a very fashionable face tattoo. I know that that's <laughs> very, you know, very fashionable. But you have your baptism visible when you live as a Christian. This is the idea, not to suppress Christian living and identifying with Jesus readily, openly, vocally. This is the challenge, striving to remember our gracious salvation and live accordingly. How will we labor to advance what is excellent and profitable, even perfecting these spiritual virtues? You know, so is this a place that's full of, you know, proud and disrespectful, selfish, gluttonous, quarrelsome people? Are, are we, you know, at my work, at school, all around me, I deal with people that are vicious. You know, I deal with people that are proud. I deal with people whose attitudes are awful. Can we show them what it is to be a baptized person, what it is to be washed down to the very depths of our souls, a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. And instead of counting the faults of others and hating them or envying what others have and counting what we lack, showing them the satisfaction and the joy and the grace of God at work in our lives and at work in our homes. What a washed and forgiven believer should be. Passing our days in a new pattern. Differently than we once did. Jesus has filled me according to the power of his death and resurrection. His crucifixion and victorious uh, rise from the dead. Not so that we can be slightly nicer Cretans. That's not renewal. That's not rebirth. That's sort of like microwaved Christianity. It's warmed over. We are new creations And it will be strange to people around us. We have to be okay with that thought. New people altogether. And in this light, we have a task in front of us, you know, to teach our children 
that it's, you know, it is inevitable that we will be different and it is critical that we press forward in these things and not wait for other people to do the same. We will serve the Lord, you know, me and my house, regardless of what anyone does on the right or on the left, and so on, you know, through the life of the church. The, the church will be different, and that's okay. Um, that's the expectation and the shining light of the Christian walk. And in the church, we will not scorn that obedience to a new pattern, not scratching each other and biting and fighting. Um, We will welcome the spiritual influence, um, the spiritual influence by way of the pulpit, by way of the inquiry of our elders and deacons and so on, the accountability between members. We will welcome the inquiry of others, the responsibility that we have to one another to set an example so that more careful devotion comes to expression. Not eye-rolling, not resentful, not foot-dragging when it's time for more excellent and profitable service. Even if someone else is directing me and I'm not the director of every decision. You know, many... Many people, for that reason today, they hover just outside the bounds of the church. You know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, ever. That, that leads to, you know, Christian mediocrity. It leads to, you know, a, a coasting slowdown of our faith. Avoiding responsibility, it's detrimental disobedience. You know, even if it's not sort of the, the most active rebellion, it just goes slow and then goes nowhere. And we can't afford to live this way. It it makes our faith small and self-willed and very limited in its power. So I urge you in Christ to beautify your baptism together in the community of faith and adopt an excellent and profitable spiritual labor and share it with others. And remember quickly that it's your goal to pass the days with encouragement of others, with joy in Christ, sharing vocally your hope in Him, teaching your children, not just assuming they will get the picture, telling them why you do the things you do, and telling new believers why you think the way you do and do the things you do. Because we are changed, not Cretans anymore, but baptized and heirs of the life of Christ and the joy of heaven. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that these things, which are easy to talk about but hard to do, that you would give us the strength and the willingness and the zeal to press forward and race towards heaven. Lord, we pray that where we are lagging and where we feel very weak, that you would strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that where we have been unspiritual, that repenting, we would turn our lives in the proper direction. That is, down the way that leads to faith and hope and love in Jesus. And Father, we ask that we would be uh, careful to open our eyes to the needs of others in the church and others around us, to encourage them in the faith, and to use our words carefully to build others up and to teach and to train for godliness. Lord, we pray that you would give us the joy and the fruit of that service in such a way that when we are taught, we would grow. And when we teach others, 
we would grow and they would also. And we ask, Lord, that many, uh, still many more who today are far from you would come to uh, be obedient disciples of Christ. Hear our prayer, Lord. Give us all these things according to your grace and mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.